Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less, the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, eight words or less. Some of you know me already. I'm Sammy. I'm one of your hosts and I'm with James. So James, this week we are looking at a book called Getting to Yes, Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In. Why did you choose this book for The Central Message? So I think a couple of reasons. I, I first came across this book uh, when I was doing my MBA at London Business School. And this was presented uh, during a module called Negotiating and Bargaining run by the brilliant uh, professor Niru Sivanathan. Um, and this was one of those modules which was always absolutely sold out, so to speak. You couldn't fit one more student into the room. And uh, the professor made me realize how truly dreadful I was at it. Um, and I remember reading this book and listening to, to the message he talked. And I think so many of us approach negotiations in the wrong way. And during the time that we're in at the moment, it's so important to be thinking about this, to be thinking about how we can arrive at the right outcomes without damaging relationships. And that becomes particularly difficult during complex and uncertain times. So I thought it'd be a good book to discuss today. Fantastic, which we certainly live in. Well, after last week's episode where we were looking at influence, the psychology of persuasion, several listeners reached out and they wanted some practical tips, some practical help on um, how to go about negotiations, particularly as so much after COVID-19 will have to be renegotiated. And so it looks like it's a great book for us to explore. And on that point, actually, Sammy, I have spoken to Professor Neri recently and he has kindly agreed to take some questions from our listeners, uh, whether that is specific to this book after listening to the podcast or questions more generally around negotiation, especially in the times that we're living in. So if anyone does have any questions, uh, please get in touch with us through the usual methods, email or social media. It is a great opportunity to have someone who is a specialist in this field, answer questions. So please do get in touch and we'll we'll pose those to him. Well, just to give you a little bit of background, the authors, Roger Fisher and William, I want to say Yuri, uh, first published the book in 1981. And as you say, James, it's become a classic read for any novice interested in learning negotiation skills. Uh, it offers step-by-step -step strategies for coming to mutually acceptable agreements in every sort of conflict. And of course, that can be business, but also, as we know, parents, children, neighbours, bosses, employees, customers, you name it. What it suggests is the problem at a glance reveals how we all too often become embroiled in unnecessary and embittered tussles over entrenched positions. Many deals have collapsed because participants could not see the forest for the trees. In our daily lives, we negotiate with others for the things we want, as we said, whether that context is business or personal. So, for instance, at work, we might negotiate a contract with a supplier or as an employee, we might be negotiating some time off or a pay rise. While at home, we might be negotiating with our partners over where to go on vacation or which movie to go and watch. In Getting to Yes, the authors point out that the number of situations requiring negotiation is increasing. But there is a problem with traditional negotiation. And as you said, James, it's because we don't do it very well. Most people haven't been taught negotiation skills. But there is a bigger problem at play, and that's the inadequacy of the adversarial method that we use, which the authors call positional bargaining. In positional bargaining, each side starts with a position 
argues and defends it, and bargains to reach a compromise. The authors offer an alternative approach, they call it principled negotiation, designed to generate fair agreements efficiently and with civility. Negotiators decide issues on the objective merits rather than on what's acceptable or unacceptable to each side, and they look for mutual gains. And where interests conflict, results are based on fair, objective standards. So it seems like there's a lot of gold in this book. James, what's your central message? So my central message, and actually you've touched on a lot of elements of it, uh, it is, in eight words or less, optimize outcomes through principled negotiations. My first petal is actually it speaks to a lot of what you were just saying, but it's the risks of this classic positional negotiation. And the reason why I think this is important as a first petal is I think we're so accustomed to this approach. We, we almost default to it. And I don't think we sometimes recognize the risks in, as you rightly said, that adversarial approach. And again, similar to as you said in the introduction, this book opens by saying, like it or not, you are a negotiator. And it's a fact of life. I don't know about you, Sammy, but I sometimes feel being in a relationship or being married is like a lifelong lesson in the importance of being an effective <laughs> negotiator and one that I'm usually losing. But it's interesting for something that is so prevalent and so important, we don't always take a lot of time to consciously think, are we doing it in the right way? Well, as the son of an Arab, my dad was always the head of our family. So I've kind of grown up feeling that I was the neck, turning the head from side to side, persuading my dad to let me do things. For example, he always wanted me to be a doctor or an engineer. Somehow I managed to persuade him to let me study philosophy and theology instead. So yeah, I've been a negotiator all my life without knowing some of this stuff in the book. And like a lot of good books, probably what is articulated here is stuff that you already learned through that uh, head start in a way, Sammy. Um, but it's, it's about articulating it and bringing it together and reminding us what's important. So coming on to this positional bargaining, as you said, this is something that we see all around us. I always think every time I go on holiday, for some reason, I feel compelled to buy some piece of souvenir that I usually then throw away when I get back. But the negotiation always starts in the same way. I will always ask how much something is. They will say X price. I will say Y price. I will end up trying to walk away. And eventually, I'll pay for it. I'll buy it and pay probably four times, or if I'm lucky, what the souvenir is 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 likely to be worth. This is this is the type of negotiation. If we're going to the cinema, I'm trying to persuade my wife that we should go and watch the latest Avengers movie. She wants to go and watch Little Women, and we tend to have the same type of discussion. It, it is a either or, and inevitably we end up watching Little Women. Uh, but I, <laughs> I think you mean Little Women. <laughs> little Women. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And. The authors try and try and put an academic spin on this, and they say that any negotiation should try to aim to achieve three things. It should produce a wise agreement, if agreement is possible, and it's important to note that sometimes agreement isn't possible. It should be efficient, and if possible, it should not damage the relationship between parties. And they say that when you look at this default positional bargaining approach that we tend to take, it sort of fails to meet nearly all of these criteria. Because when we both take a position and lock ourselves into this, we are forced to clarify and defend those positions. 
And then by doing that, we're becoming more and more committed to them. You know, the more arguments we use to defend the position we've taken, the harder it is to then reverse that position. And that becomes even worse because our ego then inevitably becomes attached to that position. And again, it then becomes difficult to move or shift your position while saving face. And even if you do, you end up becoming more bitter in the process. I was having a conversation actually with my editor of a book yesterday, and editing is by far the more the hardest part of uh, of publishing a book, because like these authors said. 50% of their book getting to yes was cut by the editor to spare the readers with all the theory. Um, same is happening with me. And I noticed myself on the call saying, am I holding on to this part of the chapter because of my ego? And I noticed, James, and in the second that I named my ego, the conversation shifted. It became more productive because we'd kind of named the elephant in the room, which is, is this chapter going to function to the best ability? Or is it because I'm attached to it in some way? So, yeah, I think the ego thing is really important when we're thinking about negotiating anything. Exactly, Sammy. And actually, that talks to a lot to, to part of the second petal uh, and the importance of separating emotions out of the negotiation. The authors say there is another way to negotiate, this idea of principled negotiation. And they use this lovely little anecdote, a lovely story to illustrate this. They talk about two children who both need an orange and they end up fighting and arguing. And in the end, they cut this orange in half using this sort of classic positional bargaining and saying, I want the whole orange, I want the whole orange. Okay, fine, we'll get half the orange each. And, you know, that might appear at first to be a fair outcome. But actually, when you uh, go into it further, what, what the reality was, was one child wanted to make orange juice, so wanted the inside of the orange to squeeze, and the other child wanted the skin to get the zest of the orange to make a cake. So by focusing on this default negotiating position, they actually arrived at an outcome that was suboptimal. They mm. used this traditional positional bargaining and it wasn't as effective as others. And that's how we can optimize outcomes through principled negotiations. So my second petal comes into the sort of the substance of what principled negotiation is. And the authors outline four key elements of principled negotiation. And these four are, one, separate the people from the problem. Two, focus on interests, not positions. Three, invent options for mutual gain. And four, use objective criteria. And I think it's worth talking a little bit about each of these because it's at the heart of, of the solution that this book is proposing. And, and like a lot of things, they may first seem very obvious and simple, but actually when you try and put it in practice, it can be quite difficult and, and we rarely give it the attention that it deserves. You know, just take one example. There's, there's an issue around perception and the challenge that what we say and what is heard is not necessarily the same thing. When my wife reminds me that there's a broken light in her house that still hasn't been fixed, she may be just making a simple statement in her mind. But in my mind, I'm probably hearing it as a critique, which in fairness is, in this case, a very valid critique, on my ability <laughs> to do any form of housework or repair work. You know, 
what is said and what is heard isn't always the same thing. And particularly true in large organizations where people rely too much on email. You'll write an email thinking it in a certain way, and the person who's reading it is unlikely to be reading that in exactly the same way. So this idea of separating people from positions, um, people from the problem, isn't always that easy. And this isn't even about bringing up the concept of emotions that you mentioned yesterday. I mean, we talked about ego, but emotions are far more complex even than that. You know, fears, even if they're the wrong fears, are real to the opposing party and need to be addressed. And hopes, even if they're completely unrealistic, cannot be ignored. And really importantly, I think, Sammy, is, is not just the other person's emotions that are important. We've got to realize that we're dealing with our own emotions that might be clouding our judgment, preventing us from listening or communicating adequately. And when we fail to address either of these, we end up defaulting to blaming each other and creating this negative cycle that introduces further emotion and reduces the ability to find a solution when perhaps there is one. That really resonates with me. When we help leaders to identify what their personal core values are, often we use the questions, what do you love most in life? You talked about fear and hopes. What do you fear most and what do you hope most for in life? And through that lens, you start to see what's the most important. And just by asking that question, you take it from an assumption and you dig deeper. So one tool we use with leaders is the five whys. And just keep asking, why is that important to you? For example, I might say that family is important to me. And you can make all kinds of assumptions around that. And you could say, yeah, family is also important to me. I'm sure everybody listening, family is important. But sitting underneath that, there might be some nuances that you don't see immediately. So why is family important? Well, if I'm really honest, it's because sometimes I have pretended to be somebody who I'm not. And when I'm with my family, I feel that I can be really Sammy, really me. And why is that important to me? Because freedom is my core value. And so it's really important that I can show up authentically. So family is really important to me because my core value is freedom and I want to be authentic. You see, it just changes the conversation. And I noticed recently with one of my associates, we were having a inverted commas conflict and we just remembered to use some of these principled negotiation techniques and asked, okay, why is that important to you? And when we shared that and both parts, it changed everything. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good way of looking at it and a really good tool to use. And it's interesting you use the word conflict as well, because I found this idea of separating people from the problem, that that's really useful because I tend to be very uncomfortable around conflict, or at least I, I have historically. And I've had to try and teach myself to realize that actually conflict is not always unhealthy. But if you separate out the people from the problem, you can be hard on your interests. You can accept some conflict around the problem itself, but remain soft around the people side of it. You can use language that's respectful. You can be empathetic. You can protect that relationship. And I think it's a really useful tool for doing that. Mm. I think it's Lencioni who says there is a paradox here. The more healthy your team is, the more conflict you have. And so being able to separate out, as you say, James, is just going to make teams 
have more healthy conflict. And I guess underpinning that is trust or vulnerability-based trust. And if we think to your, your tool around the five whys, this comes to the second element that the authors talk about, which is to focus on interests, not positions. And I think it's a really important distinction. So in any negotiation, in the classic one, someone will state a position, right? And, and you know, let's take an example between landlords and tenants. You might have positions around rents, you know, the the landlord wants the highest possible rent, the tenant wants the lowest possible rent. Those are positions, but behind those positions, each have interests which are far more nuanced and far more uh, complex and frequently overlapping. So the interest with the tenant might be they want stability, they want, obviously they want cheaper rent, but there are more interests behind that. And with the landlord, as well as the better yield, they want a reliable tenant, they want someone who's going to take care of the property, they want regularity of payment. Uh, and I think if you only focus on the positions, you narrow down your scope for agreement. If perhaps using the type of tool you suggest, you take the time to try and think what are the underlying interests of your opposing party, you might find that there is a lot more in common and a lot of opportunity for mutual gain than at first appears. And once you look at interest behind positions and you realize that there are more nuances, there is more behind that initial position, you can think and you can take the time to consider creative solutions that benefit both parties. And it can be done in a number of ways, right? If you're stuck in a particular part of a negotiation, you could try and fractionate your problem into smaller and more manageable areas. Perhaps if you're disagreeing on salaries, you can break that down and focus on benefits. Instead, you can focus on flexible working arrangements, you know, things that are of benefit to both sides in one of my corporate jobs, I was based in the Sultanate of Oman, so I was headquartered in Muscat, but the company had offices in Dubai. And the company asked me to stay during a merger and acquisition for another 12 months. And intuitively, instinctively, I wanted just to come back to Dubai, which is where some of my family live, etc. And we through negotiation, we realized there was a different way, and that was being able to work out of the Dubai offices for a week a month whilst then staying in Oman to continue with the implementation of a culture change that would started. Exactly. And if you don't take the time to look for those options, the negotiation can break down too easily. Yeah. And the, the final element they talk about is just use objective criteria, because at any point you're going to come across things that can't be resolved through these types of uh, tools and elements. And if you are in that situation, objective criteria can help significantly. You, you know, If you're looking to buy a house, look at the prices of other houses. If you're negotiating a salary, look at what fair salaries are in similar firms. And agreeing on the objective criteria can help overcome impasses. This is how you can optimize outcomes through principled negotiations. My third and final pedal, this is the concept of BATNA. Have you ever heard of, of BATNA, Sammy? Only in preparing for this podcast, but not before. So, and I hadn't either. And it's, it's, it stands for Best Alternative to Negotiated Agreement. This speaks to the fact that these tactics, these tools are incredibly useful, but 
in any negotiation, in the reality that we live in, you come to situations that cannot be overcome easily. And there is this underlying reality that the person who's going into the negotiation with the most power is likely to come out of it best. And I think the best way of thinking about this can be over a negotiation for salary. Just just position, think of two separate situations. Maybe I'm trying to negotiate with my employer for a higher salary. If I go into there and we're in a recession, I know that there's very few other job opportunities out there for me. Perhaps I have recently over leveraged and I have commitments that need to be met and I have cash flow struggles. I am going into that with a very weak negotiating position, with very little power, and I'm likely to struggle in that negotiation regardless of any of the tools I use. In an alternative situation, if I'm going in there and I have done a lot of research, I have gone and I've gotten a couple of other job offers before, I'm aware of what they would pay me, and I go into that negotiation knowing that I can walk away to a strong best alternative. That is going to make it a far more constructive and a far easier negotiation for me. And that's the power of BATNA. As a concept, this idea, again, is quite simple. Best alternative to negotiated agreement. While it's simple, Sammy, it's such a powerful tool. We all instinctively know this in some way, shape, or form. You know the song, The Gambler. You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know mm-hmm. when to walk away. <laughs> right? But we probably don't put in the level of preparation that is required to understand, firstly, what is our best alternative to a negotiated agreement? And secondly, before we even go into the negotiation, how can we improve that as much as possible? And what, what I was taught, just to finish, I'll come back to, to this London Business School module. They came up with a scoring mechanism to ensure that you did this preparation, which is going in, think about your alternatives, think about what's important to you and give them scoring. Again, if you're going into uh, perhaps a rent negotiation on a new house, when you look at alternatives, there'll be so many different factors in there. Rent will be one thing, but location will be another, the size of the place, proximity to friends. On any of these factors, you can give a certain weighting. And this type of discipline helps you to to really understand what the alternative is, perhaps find ways to improve the, uh, the value to you of those alternatives, and then use the same mechanism to weigh up the negotiation that you're actually in. I have a slightly different perspective on the implementation of BATNA. I understand that the authors, they couldn't have created a book that's a panacea to all negotiations. So I understand that. But I think it does assume certain things about the people who you are influencing with. My senses, James, that in order for this to be effective, you have to convince all parties to accept the premise of principle negotiation before you go into BATNA being effective. Look, Sammy, I, I sort of see your perspective. And I think what you say is right. Like any book, this is a tool that has some applicability in some situations and you know, might not work in others. But actually, of all of the things, I think understanding your BATNA even if it doesn't do anything else, it will help protect you against accepting a 
agreement that might be detrimental to you. I think that's absolutely right. And knowing where the red line is, where you walk away. So without it feeling like a violation, if you like, it feels more productive. That is a red line for both parties, where sometimes you do walk away. Yeah, and that protects you against accepting something that you shouldn't. So this brings me to my central message, which is, Sammy? Your central message is optimize outcomes through principled negotiation. Five words. Fantastic. Word for word, is that right? (laughs) Spot on, spot on. Well done. Good work, James. All right. Well, thank you, James. Uh, Thanks to the authors, Roger Fisher and William Urey. I hope I pronounced your last name, William, correctly. And uh, of course, all of our listeners, as always, please use the hashtag eight words or less. Share your thoughts, experiences and any book recommendations. Also, make sure to press subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our future episodes and it will automatically download our previous ones as well. Fantastic. And what book would you be choosing for our next episode, Sammy? Next week, we are looking at The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work by Alain de Botton. Sounds very interesting. Thank you, Sammy. Great stuff. Bye for now.